Let's pray together. <laughs> so Lord Jesus, here we are, not just in a church service, not just in a Christmas Eve celebration. We're standing in the midst of our journeys, our stories, our triumphs, our aches, our tears, our laughter, our questions, our dreams, our brokenness, our darkness. And we're all over the map in terms of where we are with that last chorus that we just sang. Every one of us has been equally created to live our lives in adoration of who you are. But we're different places in our embrace of that. Some of us long ago trusted Jesus as King. Others of us are not even remotely interested, but we're here because somebody invited us, a relative. Others of us are seriously kicking the tires and we've run into a number of dead ends in our journey and we're thinking, well, maybe if I can get around this whole religious thing, maybe there is something to Jesus. And the list goes on and on. And there's no way for human words to address all the stuff that's ricocheting around in this auditorium and online as people are settling in for a time of stillness, really maybe for the first time in a number of days in this busy season. So here we are, you've assembled us together to not just punch a card saying we've been to a Christmas Eve service, but to speak into our stories for your glory. So I'll listen along with them. Would you speak? Light of the world, would you illuminate? Word of God, would you feed? I pray this in the name of the baby who grew up and died and rose again. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, Merry Christmas. All right, now they're sneaking off. One more time, would you thank the worship team for what they have poured in to this weekend? Just seeing this process happen over these last months has been fantastic. And we're not done. Uh, they'll be back. But in the meantime, we're going to celebrate Christmas Eve as Northland Church. And I got to start by saying we're so glad you're here in this auditorium and also online. And I need to say something else. You guys clean up really good. I mean, you're looking good. I, I, um, Somebody asked me, did I wear a tie as a Christmas present to you guys? That's, a, oh, you like it? Yeah. I didn't, that's not my, I, I took a shower, but I, that, my tie is not a Christmas present. But I did bring a Christmas present. So here you go. Um, when you have a Christmas present on Christmas weekend, this close to Christmas Day, don't you think it's appropriate to open it? That was so weak. Come on. Do you think it's appropriate to open it? Okay, all right. So while I'm opening it, I'll give you a little bit of the background. Um, this is a present I gave to myself several years ago. You guys ever buy a Christmas present for yourself? It's helpful. It keeps me motivated when I do that. And here we go. It's a flashlight. I need some reactions. Okay, that's that better. Not just any flashlight, this is one bright flashlight. Ah. It's not only a bright flashlight, it's a waterproof flashlight. 
It's a dive light. Okay, you guys are mocking me now. You're just kind of going along with it. Some of you might want to ask, why did you give yourself a dive light for a Christmas present? Thank you so much for asking. So let me tell you, um, a buddy of mine and I went down to Cozumel several years ago. His name's Rick. We're both divers. And we went down to get our advanced scuba certification. And one evening we did an optional night dive. Now people will ask me, even this week, well, what's a night dive? All right, so it's not that difficult. Let's go ahead and cover a couple of the basics. Let's take two of those words and, and evaluate them. Number one, it's a dive. Number two, it's at night. Now you're following. Once you get those two factors in, you know you need a dive light. I'd never been on a night dive, so I needed a dive light. I went into the dive shop there on the island, said, I want to buy a dive light. He said, you don't need to buy one. We'll rent you one. I said, great. I said, are these batteries fresh? He said, see, sí, senor. I said, all right. I headed off to the dock at dusk, met Rick there and two other pairs of divers, because you always dive with a buddy. So three pairs of divers and a dive master. We get on the dive boat and head out to the dive site. Now in Cozumel, it's different than other dive sites in that you don't go to one spot and the boat anchors, you go dive around and then come back up. The currents are way too strong along the Yucatan Peninsula there. They are moving at quite a click. So the dive boat drops you off along the coral reef, you drift along, and then you emerge, say 45 minutes later, an hour later, and the boat picks you up. And the, the night dive, you're doing all of that, it's just at night, in the dark. So it's a moonless night, but we were excited. We're trucking out, I guess you're not trucking out, we were boating out to the site, and the guys, the dive master said, okay, seniors, masks, fins on, because you got to get out at just the right moment to hit the reef where they want you to hit it. So we got all set, went over to the side of the boat, turned our lights on, and jumped into the water. And we started going down, down, down. Some of you right now can't even concentrate because you're thinking, would you explain one more time why you do this at night? I mean, it's hard enough for some people to imagine going under the water where breathing is not free during the daytime, but why would you do it at night? Well, the reason is the coral reef during the day is a thoroughfare. It's like an interstate of marine life and animals and fish. It's fascinating. But at night, it's rush hour. Everybody comes out to play. And you see stuff you would never see during the day, and this dive was no exception. We leveled off at about 53 feet, and it was phenomenal. In fact, it was the best dive of my life for 22 minutes. And at 22 minutes, with my depth gauge reading 53 feet, my light flickered just a little, and it was incredible how quickly it happened the battery gave out and the light went out. And the current did not stop moving. I didn't know if I was about to hit the coral reef. I got disoriented. I didn't know which way was up. I was starting to have to pay attention to the bubbles and, and that helped me orient which way was up. My breathing started accelerating. I felt confusion. Weakness, even though adrenaline was pumping, I was powerless. Aloneness settled in. A longing for things to be different was about all I could think about at that moment. 
And then I saw something that settled me. It was my friend Rick, my dive buddy, his light. And I saw it and all of a sudden I settled back down. There was something about at least seeing his light. Now, he didn't see me. I disappeared, he told me later. I'm going along, he said, and then you were there, and then just a second later, you were gone. I don't know if you've ever noticed that dive, uh, wetsuits are, are black. Typically, I never knew the reason for that. The reason for that is when your dive light goes out, the black camouflages you from your dive buddy so he can't find you. It's really convenient. <laughs> so he doesn't know where I am. And remember, it's a drift dive, so I've got to, to swim over to him, and I grabbed him on the leg. That's all right, it was already a wetsuit, so. <laughs> this person who had totally disappeared now was once again visible to him. His eyes were as big as saucers, and I, got, I went through some sign language, okay, you know, my dive light's out, I'm going to go over to the dive master and uh, get an additional one, because the guy in the dive shop had said, hey, if it goes out, the dive master will have an extra light. I went over to the dive master, grabbed him on the leg, same thing happened, scared him to death. But I, there are a lot of dive signals, and one I've never seen before, and I learned that day, it's, it's a dive signal that means... I have no dive light, you're on your own. And this is what it looks like. It's so uh, he said that. And so I went back over to Rick, said, I don't have a dive light. You and I are going to be BFFs. I mean, we're best friends forever. We're going to closer than we've ever been. And so I'm drifting along with him two to three feet, four feet, but right there. And I'm totally dependent on his beam of light. There's no peripheral vision because of how dark it was. And it wasn't going that great, but I, we were enduring it. And I was just below him to his right. The beam of his light was off over my right shoulder. And we are panning over to the right. And then his beam stopped on the snout of a shark that was about seven feet away and about nine feet long, staring right at me, right on my level. <laughs> I think I inhaled half my tank of air right there. <gasps> But it was good because that gave me buoyancy to go up above the shark at that point. So now I'm above the shark. All the other divers gather around because Rick did this number that, hey, there's something interesting here and it's not Matt. Um, they pay attention to the shark a little bit. Now it turns out that it was, it was a nurse shark. They're relatively harmless. They don't bother humans a whole lot. But let me tell you something. When you're 53 and under, you don't have a dive light. Adjectives don't matter when it comes to a shark. A shark's a shark. The shark swam away finally, and now I'm left with six dive lights down there. One of them's attached to my, my friend Rick, but I don't know which one. So I go down in process of elimination. I'm going to each one, playing the are you my mother game, you know that story? Hey, are you my dive buddy? No, scaring each person equally the same, grabbing them out of the dark. About three or four in, I finally found Rick again. He's got big saucer eyes, and he and I voted unanimously immediately, this is nuts, we're surfacing. This is just too stressful. So we went up, signaled to the dive boat, uh, and uh, waited for everybody else to join us, and then got our money back. And a couple of months later, at Christmas time, I gave myself a present. <laughs> and I like my present. And it actually is a good gift for Christmas, because it's Christmas where we celebrate the Advent of God who became flesh. In Scripture, two advents 
or talked about, prophesied. The first advent is both prophesied and recorded. It's the advent, the coming of Christ that we're celebrating now. The second advent will be when he returns to complete the process that he began. And we're in this mysterious in-between time in which the redemption has already begun, but is not yet completed. And in the midst of that, we're navigating a world that is still fallen, that is still dark. And if I'm going to get Christmas, I've got to get Christ's birth. If I'm going to get Christ's birth, I've got to get light. And if I'm going to get light, I've got to get my my own darkness. A lot of times people think at Christmas time, what we're supposed to do is ignore the darkness, distract ourselves from the darkness, pretend it's not there. Biblically, we're called to be honest and authentic and embrace our darkness, not turn our back on it, because it's my darkness that actually enables me to celebrate more, not less, because the gospel is real. But in the prophecies in the Old Testament, in the historical accounts in the New Testament, this whole notion of light and dark continually comes up. Take, for example, the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 8, starting with, at the end with verse 20, 22. Then they will look towards the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness. I'd never read that passage like I read it now before that dive light incident. That whole notion, can't see your hand in front of face, I'd never really experienced that. I experienced it then. And I actually mentioned four words. You might not have noticed them, but they were very intentional. Darkness has an impact on us. It's on a number of levels, but four of those levels are this, confusion, weakness, aloneness, and longing for things to be different. The darkness is the fallenness. I don't think it's news to any of us that we live in a planet that's broken. And in the midst of that darkness, and I don't know what yours is right now, maybe it's a relational something, maybe it's family, maybe it's a health issue, maybe, maybe it's finances, maybe it's job, maybe it's something at school. But I want to encourage you, instead of trying to suppress it like keeping a beach ball underwater, go ahead and let it come to the surface, embrace it, engage with it, while at the same time embracing the light. The prophet continues. He says, this darkness, this utter darkness is there, it's real. But then there's this amazing word, it's a gospel word. It's not a word you typically say is a gospel word, but the next word is nevertheless. So I don't know what your darkness is, but nevertheless, in the face of that darkness, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor the Gal Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. So this prophecy that comes hundreds of years before Christ's birth says, in the midst of the darkness, a light's going to arise. The people, verse two, the people walking in darkness, the people scuba diving in darkness, the people doing life in darkness, doing relationships in darkness, 
darkness, doing jobs in darkness, doing parties in darkness, doing addictions in darkness, doing hobbies in darkness. The people that are grappling with reality in the midst of darkness, those people, which is everyone, for those who will look, those people can see a great light. And on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light is dawned. And here's the deal. That light has a name. That light is a person. Verse six, for to us a child is born. It's fully human. To us a son is given, fully God. And the government, the leadership, the sustenance of the universe will be on his shoulders. And he will be called wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, Prince of Peace or Prince of Shalom. Now we've been in this series this month of December of Advent, looking at each of those terms, those names, but I've saved this for this weekend. Those actually are not four different names. In the Hebrew, which is the language that Isaiah wrote in, it's singular, not plural. It's one name. All of those are one name. In the Hebrew, it's Peleoaz El Gabor Abaya Adsar Shalom. His name, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, Prince of Shalom. And the light beckons us into relationship, summons us in the midst of our darkness. I don't know what yours is. I know some of what I'm dealing with. And I, there's, there's always darkness, plenty of darkness to go around. It's an invitation though, to go deeper with the gospel because it's an invitation to go deeper in terms of grappling with who Jesus is. This name that is above every name, biblically, Name is not just, a person's name is not just their, ident their, their, uh, their label, their identity. It, it is their competency, their capacity. It's who they are, what they do. His name shall be called. But it is appropriate to look at the, those, those, that one name in four different aspects because of all the different things that are emphasized. So what I want you to do, go back. Embrace whatever that darkness is and those, those four realities that always happen, confusion and weakness and aloneness and longing, and let's compare them with those four names. First, in the midst of my darkness, wonderful counselor comes to me in the midst of my confusion and brings guidance. The wonderful counselor brings guidance to our confusion. I don't care how smart we are figuring out this this, this life journey thing and this humanity thing, it's not, it's not something we can figure out on our own because we didn't create ourselves. And every now and then we get disoriented. In fact, we're born disoriented in a lot of ways. Any of you guys read Dante's Inferno when you're in high school or did you just read the cliff notes? That's what I did and I just got the cliff notes. And, but Dante Alighieri wrote his Inferno divine comedy. And because I read the cliff notes, I missed the first line of the book until years later. You know what the first line is? He's put himself in this story that he's writing, puts himself in that story as a 40-year-old man. And this is how he opens his book. In the middle of the road of my life, I awoke 
in a dark wood, and the true way was wholly lost. It was dark. Robert Frost, the poet, says, I am one who is acquainted with the night. We are all acquainted with the night, but in the midst of that confusion, this is what the light of the world says. Jesus in John chapter 8, verse 12, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus says, hey, follow me. It's not to turn me into a religious nutcase. It's to turn me back into a fully fulfilled human being restored into the original purpose for which I was created. That's what following Christ looks like. But to actually celebrate Christmas authentically, substantively, it's not just to relate with him as a wonderful counselor in the midst of my confusion, but to relate with him also, secondly, as mighty God in the midst of my weakness. And as mighty God, he brings strength to me in the midst of my weakness. And I don't care how strong you think you are. We encounter stuff that we, we feel powerless over. How about it? What sharks are you dealing with? right now? What sharks am I dealing with right now? A medical condition that's debilitating? A marriage that's unraveling? A parent that's declining? A child that's rebelling? A pregnancy that's not happening? A friend that's betraying? A bully that's abusing? A job that's disappointing? A boss that's undermining? a bank account that's diminishing, a disappointment that's haunting, a depression that's suffocating, an unfulfilled dream that's taunting, a fear that's paralyzing. Maybe it's a sin that's shaming or just a life that's unfulfilling. Whatever the shark is, along comes the light of the world. And Jesus says this in John 16, I tell you these things so that in me you may have shalom, you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. In this world you will have darkness. John 16, But take heart. I've overcome the world. Take heart. Yes, the struggle is real, but so is the gospel. The darkness is real, but so is the light. And he's mighty God. And he doesn't shrink back from any shark. The third aspect of his name brings the intimacy. It's not just that he's wonderful counselor and he, he knows the right way to go. And mighty God, that he's, he's strong and able to take me. There. Thirdly, he's 
everlasting father. And he brings love to me in the midst of my aloneness. He cares. John 3, 16, for God so loved. I got news for you. Whatever darkness you're grappling with, God's not lost your number. He loves you. Are there mysteries? Absolutely. The unanswered questions, you bet. Does Christianity come along and throw out a $5 answer to those million-dollar questions? No. Religious simpletons might, but not Jesus. At Lazarus' tomb, Jesus wept even though he was about to resurrect him. Why? Because he loved him. And he was encountering in full force the impact of the fall, the impact of human beings living in the consequences of their rebellion and living in darkness. And he enters into that. I don't understand the mystery of it. Why the delay between the first advent and the second advent is what it is, but God has his purposes that will bring him the greatest glory that we do now. And in the meantime, he loves us in the darkness. I'm not alone. John chapter one, verse four. This, this life, you know, John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe on him would not perish but have eternal life. That life is referred to in John 1, 4. In him was life. See, the eternal life promise in John three sixteen is not just a future quantitative thing. It's a present qualitative thing. It's what I refer, I refer to as life with a capital L. God doesn't determine whether I'm alive or not just by whether my heart is beating and my lungs are breathing, but whether I've been restored into the original trajectory for which I was created. And in Jesus was life. That life with a capital L was the light of all mankind. That his light leads me on a path of life, leads me back to where I belong, which brings up the fourth aspect that completes this picture that Isaiah is painting for men and women who are not just going along punching Christmas Eve cards, but are grappling authentically with their journeys. And he says, he's wonderful counselor for our confusion. He's mighty God for our weakness in the darkness. He's everlasting Father for our loneliness in the darkness, but He is also Prince of Shalom for our longing in the darkness to bring restoration. We all have longing. We've done it this week. I have a couple of phone calls. You respond. Maybe you don't articulate it, but I think it, some version of this is not right. This is not how it should be. A parent shouldn't get that news from a child. An employee shouldn't get that news from a fellow employee. We shouldn't be reading this kind of headline. Where do we get that notion that the world is not as it ought to be? It's embedded in us as his images. And it expresses itself in our longings for things to change, for things to get brighter. And I don't typically read a quote of this length, but you're tracking, and so I am going to. James K.A. Smith. It's about Christmas Eve. Maybe you consider yourself secular, an atheist perhaps, or at least agnostic. And generally just completely unconcerned with God or religion or church or any of that. It's not like you've left the faith or killed God. He just never existed in the Brooklyn you call home. Indeed, 
in the circles you run in, matters of spirituality or transcendence just never arise. Uh, the existential world is flat. You're over it. Let's move on. Sure, we're all trying to find significance or make meaning and vaguely trying to figure out just what the heck this is all about. But come on, that doesn't mean we're going to entertain fairy tales about saviors being born in a manger. Which is why you're constantly puzzled by all these people you read about in the New York Times or the New Yorker who are like super religious, people who can't imagine that God does not exist. They seem to inhabit some other universe than your own. But then one of your friends starts flirting with Catholicism. After a few months, she invites you to St. Patrick's Cathedral on Christmas Eve. And you're thinking this must be just a therapeutic strategy, a kind of puritanical form of self-medication, but you just can't bring yourself to go along. So you stay home alone, and before you know it, just as the bourbon has taken hold, one of those unbelievably ambiguous and nostalgic songs by the musical group, The Postal Service, comes on. You know, one of those songs with a sprite light tune that lulls you into thinking it's just banal triviality, and then... Then all of a sudden the lyrics hit you, lyrics like I'm screaming at the top of my lungs, pretending the echoes belong to someone, someone I used to know, and you're spooked by the longings, welling up, naming something that wells up in you from some subterranean cavern in your consciousness, and you feel stupid that you're crying, but you can't stop, and you want to just blame it on the bourbon and the loneliness, and yet there is the oddest taste of some distant joy calling to you in those tears. And you're not sure what to do with any of this. Pay attention to those. Those longings are like breadcrumb trails that can lead us home. The Prince of Shalom, the Prince of Peace. In the Old Testament, peace, shalom is mentioned about 238 times. Only 36 of those times is it referring to the absence of war or conflict. The rest of the time, it's referring to a restoration of wholeness, of completeness of the way things ought to be. When a human being wishes another human being shalom, they're wishing them back into the original trajectory for which they're created. We're not home yet, we're still in the darkness, but the light enables us to get a head start on shalom. But the Prince of Shalom comes, it doesn't just kind of dole it out in a nice sentimental way. Violence was involved that he subjected himself to. Some of you here at Northland know that I told you this a couple of weeks ago. Every Advent season, every December, I carry around in my pocket all the time a nail, just a little small carpenter's nail. And it's to remind me in the midst of all of the trinkets and toys and festivities that this baby is not just a little symbol. He grew up, he was born explicitly to die, to subject himself to death on a cross. It was not the death of, of being a martyr. It was a sacrificial substitutionary death in which he took on himself the penalty of the rebellion of the entire cosmos, including us. Dying in our place, fulfilling a payment 
that otherwise it would take me all eternity to pay. And he says, if anyone would come after me, if he would acknowledge what I've done for him and let what I did on the cross be credited to his or her account, they're coming into the light. And this baby was no mascot. He was king. John chapter 1, 4 that I read a moment ago, I'm going to read it again, but I want you to see verse 5 as well. John 1, 4, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. But look at that light. That light was not just some mood lighting off to the side. That light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not cattle and bottom overcome it. Whatever darkness you've got, the best news I've got is not put on a Christmas carol, pour yourself something to drink and get your favorite dessert and hope it goes away. My assurance for you is that in the midst of your darkness, the light has come and is beckoning you now. And that light has a name. And he is the son of God, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. You know, in the line witch in the wardrobe, the kids go to this land of Narnia where Aslan is the, the, the allegorical Christ figure. Mr. Beaver describes Aslan to Susan, one of the little kids, and is describing the majesty and the power of Aslan. And Susan says, but well, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver said, of course not, but he's good. And he beckons us. But I'll tell you what's not safe, darkness. The Son of God has come. And to enable you and me to experience a merry Christmas in the true sense of the word, it's not just doing something sentimental, but engaging with the substance, the substance that the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And that light makes your darkness tremble. Let's stand together right now and celebrate that.